Hi, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman, and today I'll be speaking about inducing an older person to change their will, which can be a form of elder abuse depending how you do it. When you hear one side of a story and don't have all the facts, you can start making assumptions yourself about why people acted in a certain way. In this case, it is really hard not to make assumptions about the intentions of one of the parties. It's a good thing, then, that the court hid the person's identity and referred to her as AB. So I shouldn't get in trouble for defaming this person when I talk about the facts of this case and how it looks like AB took advantage of a sick and elderly woman to get her to change her will. The background. Sinead Pixie Mefagin died in Canberra on the 24th of December 2014. She had two wills which were significantly different and the question for the court in this matter was whether Sinead had capacity to make the second will. If not, then the first will would determine what happened with her estate. First, a little background about who was Sinead Mefagin. Sinead was born 10th of November 1950 at Manairu Station, Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. Sinead worked most of her life as a public servant, and she was a long-standing member of the Canberra Indigenous community. She married Malcolm Mafagin in 1972, and they had one child, Jason. Sometime between 1976 and 1980, Sinead met Delilah McGillivray. Delilah was posted to Canberra as an 18-year-old private in the Australian Regular Army. According to Delilah, there was an active and diverse Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population in Canberra at the time. Sinead and Delilah would socialise together at the Woden Town Club, at each other's houses and at community events. They worked together for several years at Aboriginal Hostels Limited in Woden, and again later on at Centrelink, and they spent time together outside of work. They referred to each other as sisters, and Delilah's children would refer to Sinead as Auntie Sinead. In 1988, Sinead and Malcolm divorced. Sinead's son Jason was a talented football player, but left that to focus on rowing. In 1990, Jason was invited to join the Australian boys rowing four to compete at the Junior World Titles in France, where he placed second. He was suspected to be the first Aboriginal to represent Australia in rowing. In 2000, Jason died of a drug overdose, leaving Sinead with no close family members. Delilah took three weeks off work to help organise the funeral, a traditional ceremony, and to support Sinead through her grief. Later in 2000, Delilah moved to Queensland but stayed in contact with Sinead and they remained as sisters. Sinead did the first will in November 2009 and sent a copy of the will in a letter addressed to my sis Delilah. The letter to Delilah outlined Sinead's testamentary wishes. The will appointed Delilah as one of the executors and trustees. In her will, Sinead left a number of gifts to charities and long-standing friends. She left the residue of the estate to a foundation to be set up in the name of her son, the Jason McFadgen Foundation. She also expressed the wish for the funeral arrangements to be made with the same company that had conducted the funeral for her son. The will even arranged for payment of Delilah's airfares and accommodations to allow her to attend the funeral. Fast forward five years and in 2014, Sinead's old work colleague has come to visit. The colleague, A.B., had worked with Sinead back in the 1990s at Aboriginal Hostels Limited. During the two-week visit, A.B. took Sinead to a funeral company to plan Sinead's funeral. It wasn't the same company that had done Jason's funeral. 
AB also arranged for Shanae to see a lawyer, who is referred to as SK, to do a new will and power of attorney. On the 12th of April 2014, a power of attorney was signed appointing AB to be Shanae's attorney. This appears to have been the last time Shanae had contact with AB. Two months later, Shanae contacted Marlene Sutton on Facebook Messenger. Marlene had been a close family friend of Shanae's since 1977. Shanae said, and I quote, I haven't heard from AB for some time now. May I ask if you can be executor of my will and enduring power of attorney? End quote. Marlene agreed to take on the roles. At that time, the power of attorney had already been signed, but not the second will. Four days after sending the message to Marlene, Shanae was admitted to Canberra Hospital with cerebellar hemorrhage, which left Shanae with impaired cognitive functioning and reduced mobility. She had a further hemorrhage a month later on the 13th of August 2014. On the 15th of August, SK, the solicitor AB had instructed to prepare the second will, arranged for Shanae to sign it while she was in her hospital bed. Her second will was starkly different from her first will. The will left everything to AB. It also appointed her friend Marlene Sutton as trustee of her will. So Shanae had gone with AB to the solicitor and given instructions for this second will. A little while later, once AB had disappeared from her life again, she asked her old friend Marlene to be trustee. Marlene agrees and Shanae must have notified the solicitor because this amendment appeared in the second will. There was evidence to suggest that the solicitor knew Shanae was unwell at the time of signing. The fact that she was signing from her hospital bed alone should have raised alarm bells. Shanae's behaviour as well indicated a loss of capacity. Marlene visited Shanae in the hospital and gave evidence of how confused Shanae was. She often didn't know where she was, that she was in a hospital or how she got there. In September, Shanae was going to be moved from the hospital into a residential aged care facility and, because by now Shanae didn't have capacity to make decisions, the appointed attorney was needed to give instructions and consent for the move, as well as other tasks. Abia was appointed as Shanae's attorney under the power of attorney signed in April. The hospital social worker tried contacting AB several times, by email and by phone. On the 22nd of September, AB emailed the social worker to say that she was unable to travel to Canberra to attend to the task. The social worker advised AB to appoint someone to take over the attorney responsibilities, as they needed someone to attend in person. AB did not reply. In October, the social worker applied to the ACT Civil and Administrative Tribunal to appoint someone else as guardian and financial manager, and they appointed Marlene Sutton. Shanae never did move into aged care. She stayed in the hospital until her death in December 2014. The day after Shanae's death, Marlene rang AB and left a message that Shanae had passed away. AB called her back and they discussed the funeral arrangements. AB told Marlene that the funeral had already been organised and the only people to attend the funeral would be Shanae's ex-husband, her former father-in-law, AB and AB's husband. AB didn't want Delilah attending the funeral because she didn't get on with her. This really surprised Marlene because Shanae had wanted Delilah to attend her funeral so much that in her first will she had arranged for Delilah's airfare and accommodation to be paid for from the estate. Sometime later, AB told Marlene that she would not be going to Canberra to attend the funeral after all, and this was the last communication Marlene had with AB. Those are the background facts, and I should mention before I move on to the court hearing that most of the information I have given you was provided to the court by Marlene Sutton and Delilah McGillivray. AB was informed of the court proceedings, but she didn't provide any evidence or even turn up for the hearing. 
the court hearing. It was actually Marlene Sutton, the trustee of the second will, who applied to the court arguing that the second will was invalid because Sinead didn't have capacity at the time it was made. Marlene applied for the estate to be distributed in accordance with the first will instead. Marlene and Delilah expressed their concern to the court how different the second will was from what they believed Sinead wanted. The second will didn't make any charitable donations. In particular, it didn't provide for the foundation in memory of her son. They also felt that Sinead would have wanted her personal belongings and memories to go to her family and not to AB. Medical evidence was provided to the court in relation to Sinead's mental capacity at the time of doing the second will. There was even neuropsychology notes available that had been made on the day she signed the second will. You can't get any more current than that. The note stated that Sinead was 63 years old and had a large left cerebellar hemorrhage two days earlier, and that Sinead was not competent to consent to care and that she needed a guardian and financial manager to make decisions for her. The notes also said that Sinead had Korsakoff syndrome, which induced short-term memory abnormality. A Dr. Ackerman reviewed the medical records and advised the court that on 15th August 2014, Sinead was severely cognitively impaired and did not have capacity to make the second will. Dr. Ackerman also added that due to Sinead's clinical condition, it would have been quite possible for AB and the solicitor SK to unduly influence her to do the new will. The test for determining whether someone has capacity to do a will was set down in the case of Banks versus Goodfellow in 1870, and we are still guided by it today. Basically, the test can be broken into four questions. 1. Does the person understand what it means to make a will? 2. Does she understand what assets and property she has and what she is leaving to people in her will? 3. Is she aware of the people who might make a claim against the estate? or who she might owe a moral obligation to leave something to. 4. Is there any mental disorder or delusions influencing her will? The court noted that the neuropsychology evidence couldn't have been made at a more relevant time, being made on the same day that Sinead signed the second will, meaning that the psychologist was in the best position to assess Sinead's capacity. That, taken with Dr. Ackerman's review of the medical records and Marlene's evidence of Sinead's behaviour, was found to be proof that Sinead would not have been aware of the significance of the document she signed on the 15th of August 2014, and that she did not have the necessary testamentary capacity. The second will was declared invalid, and the first will was declared to be the last will of Sinead McFadden. Summary. I mentioned at the start that without all the facts it can be easy to make assumptions. We don't have AB's side of this story. She had the opportunity to tell it to the court, but she didn't. And we have very few facts about what happened in that two-week visit, what AB said to Sinead, and what their relationship had been like before the visit. All we know is that AB and Sinead worked together for an unknown amount of time in the 1990s. Decades later, in 2014, AB visits for only two weeks, and she must have acted pretty quickly to arrange a trip to the funeral home and a solicitor in that time. Assuming the best, Sinead tells AB that she wants to organise her funeral, her power of attorney and her will. Even if it was what Sinead wants, if AB had no intention of actually assisting with Sinead's financial and medical decisions, which her actions indicate she didn't, she should never have accepted the appointment as attorney. 
Also, did she even question it when this old work colleague, who is 63 years old and sick, decides to leave her everything in her will? Did she ask Shanae what was in her old will and why she was changing it? Assuming the worst, AB, an old acquaintance, shows up many years later for only a short visit and finds that Shanae is elderly and unwell. She may be appearing confused and is probably lonely and depressed. Her only child is deceased and she has no immediate family. So AB quickly takes her to a solicitor and says, well, you've got no one else, why don't you leave everything to me? In exchange, I'll look after you and be your attorney. And as quickly as the documents are prepared, she disappears. She wants nothing to do with Shanae when she's sick in hospital and only reappears again when Shanae is dead. It was a gamble and if Shanae's long-standing friends hadn't questioned it, it might have paid off for AB. Can you see how this can be a form of elder abuse? Waiting until a person is old, ailing and vulnerable and inserting yourself into their life with the sole aim of getting them to change their will to leave you something. Maybe every now and then you mention how their family and friends don't have time for them. You make sure to give them assistance and affection when they need it most and you casually ask if they've done a will. You've probably heard cases like this. Maybe it's happened in your own family or to a friend. And the older person may have no idea what was going on and think that this person genuinely cared for them. Even if the older person is unaware, this is still elder abuse. To target, to manipulate and to influence a vulnerable older person for selfish reasons is elder abuse. case of the estate of McFadgen. The citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on the case or recommendation of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. Thank you for joining me and thank you from the Elder Abuse Service. If anything I've said today makes you think you may have identified elder abuse or are at risk of elder abuse, you can call the National Elder Abuse Helpline on 1800 353 374 or if you're on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 02 4324 5611.